0: From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. Individuals in New South Wales are now heading into some their sixth week of lockdown, some even their seventh week of lockdown. And it's really starting to hit home that this may not be the last time that we're all inside. Last year when the virus was sweeping the globe there was always a promise that when we had vaccines we would go back to life as normal but now we have the vaccines and we are slowly but surely getting them into arms and yet it's really starting to dawn on people that life may just never be the same again. And on that very somber note welcome back to our COVID blogger Bianca O'Grady.
1: Thanks so much. Good to be back.
0: (laughs) This week there's a lot of Focus really on the Doherty Institute modelling that has come out, and it's about looking at the vaccination number that we have to reach in order to return to a more normal life. But what is the picture that it actually paints?
1: Well, it's it's an interesting picture. So the you know we had this press conference with Scott Morrison and um, uh, I think it was Jody McVernon from the Doherty Institute earlier this week, where Morrison outlined this four phase plan, which was essentially you know what is our path from here on um, to, you know, out of this pandemic. And I think this is like the third four-phase four plan or something. I don't know. It feels like we get these on a semi-regular basis, which does reflect the constantly changing nature of this pandemic. Um, so the four-phase plan, there's the current phase, which is where, you know, vaccinate like hell, um, do a lot of kind of pilot studies looking at different approaches, um, but the main focus is suppressing the virus and that means early and strong lockdowns we're trying to keep a lid on community transmission so that's where we are now. The next phase is which is really what the Doherty modelling is all about is about the transition from this phase to the next phase so the next phase is what's called the post-vaccination phase so this is where we've reached a certain level of Of um, vaccine coverage in the population. We have um, very little serious illness, hospitalisation and deaths from COVID, which is obviously, first and foremost, what we want to achieve. Um, That's achieved with a combination of vaccines, but also a combination of um, public health uh, measures. But the idea being in this phase, hard lockdowns are unlikely or very short and sharp, you know, they're very localised, they're really used to just get on top of a local outbreak. Um, And then there's, you know, phase B and C, which this report doesn't address because they basically say, look, we can't predict phase C C and D. So that's the consolidation phase is phase C, where it's basically we manage COVID pretty much the same way that we manage other... Infectious disease outbreaks, like presumably like influenza, and then the final phase is the doors are open. It's Britain's Freedom Day. You know, it's removal of all border restrictions. Um, so those phases aren't really modelled because you know, as the the um, experts, the Doherty experts say that we can't you can't plan that far in advance. There are too many variables. There are too many things that we still don't know about how this virus is going to behave once you do have a highly vaccinated population. And, you know, England is kind of the petri dish for that in some ways. Um, uh, You know, England, Israel and the US, you know, highly vaccinated populations or relatively highly vaccinated populations, um, but also Delta running rampant. So what does that look like? So there's a lot of very, very close analysis of data coming out of those three nations. So what the Doherty Institute have done is basically look at transmission rates across the population with different, uh, not only different levels of vaccination, different vaccine approaches. Um, and at the same time, they're varying the effectiveness of the, what they call the TTIQ, so test, trace, isolate and quarantine measures, and also varying um, or, I guess, looking at different levels of public health interventions such as lockdown, such as, um, you know, distancing requirements. So really, the so far, the vaccine campaign has focused on the people who are at highest risk of exposure and at highest risk of severe outcomes. So that's been you know, frontline healthcare, it's been um, frontline quarantine care, um, and really dominantly older people and those with comorbidities. So the aim has been we want to keep these people out of hospital. We want to avoid them having severe disease. Now, that's supposed to have been the focus, and one can obviously debate how focused that focus has been, given that at the moment we've only got around 45% of Australians aged over 70 who are fully vaccinated. We still have people like aged care workers and quarantine drivers who are not vaccinated. So. You know, what we've been doing so far is a bit piss poor, but that's what we've been trying to do. So the big pivot now is that instead of focusing vaccines on um, high-risk or at-risk groups, uh, with the aim being of keeping people out of hospital and out of the morgue, essentially, what this modelling is suggesting now is that we need to focus on reducing transmission. So this means focusing on the sections of the population that are contributing the most to transmission of COVID uh, and that is particularly young people, young adults, and I guess workers, um, because at the moment those those groups are the peak transmitters, so it's a pivot away from emphasizing vaccination in you know over fifties or over seventies to basically say anybody over the age of sixteen, but particularly you know young people, so I guess <laughs> i 'd like to say under fifty because that would include me, but let's say under forty um and and the aim here is that. If you reduce transmission, you reduce the likelihood of hospitals being overwhelmed with severe cases. It reduces the need for and the severity and length of lockdowns. So then the question is, how much vaccine coverage do we need to achieve that, given how Delta behaves? So um, there's a couple of assumptions that have been used in this modelling. So the first is that the healthcare system will stay at its current capacity. Um, Now, obviously that that's going to be an issue if we get outbreaks that do start to severely compromise the healthcare infrastructure. For example, if we start getting big outbreaks in hospitals that mean a lot of staff have to isolate. Um, so that's one assumption. The second is that people comply with public health orders. again, a bit of a dangerous assumption given the protests that we've seen um, and and certainly there's also a concern that people do get weary of complying over time. So you know this is assuming that we do actually do what's required of us. The third assumption is that vaccine derived immunity lasts at least six months. Um, again, Interesting assumption because, again, some data coming from Israel suggests um, they, they do see evidence of waning immunity over time. And we're talking about months, not, not years, obviously, given we've only had these vaccines for a year and a bit. Um, so, again, an assumption that we're not entirely sure if that's the case yet. Um, And then the fourth pivotal assumption is that we haven't, we don't have vaccine escape variants. So these are variants of the virus that um, are able to get around vaccine acquired immunity or vaccine derived immunity. So those are the assumptions underpinning this. So with all of that in mind, what's very clear is that 50% or 60% coverage is not nearly enough. If we had, even if we had that level of fully vaccinated coverage across the entire eligible adult population, um, and we just then opened up everything, things would go ballistic. Um, you know, it, it's not nearly enough. So that said, you know, with those levels of coverage, which is worth saying we are still way below, we still need lockdowns. Um, the reason being that if we don't have lockdowns, the health system will be overwhelmed, it will collapse Um, And it also would be incredibly difficult, one would say impossible, for the test, trace, isolate, quarantine system to keep up with cases. So then the next kind of level is, well, what about 70% coverage? So at 70%, if we have continued what they call low-level social restrictions, so basically restrictions on indoor capacity, um, if we have low-level restrictions, uh, we have a reasonably good chance of avoiding serious lockdowns like the one that we're in at the moment. Um, but again, this is still dependent on us being able to test, trace, isolate and quarantine as required and, um, and quickly. You know, we can't have delays. We can't have people diagnosed and then not isolating. We can't have people quarantined or not quarantining. So, you know, there's a real dependence at 70% on compliance with all of these measures. Um, and even at 70% vaccine coverage, and this is across the whole population, 16 and older, um, we will still need, or likely still need, occasional short, hard lockdowns. And the reason is to avoid the health sector being overwhelmed. that That's the, you know, is it, the nightmare scenario is what we saw in places like New York and, and Milan in the, the early sort of first wave of the pandemic, where people, wouldn't just simply had to, left to die because there weren't enough ventilators. You know, we had temporary morgues, we had temporary wards set up, we had people in in basement car parks. Um, that's the nightmare scenario that we're trying to avoid with all of this.
0: So, if we then lift the threshold higher and go to eighty percent, what does that actually look like? At what point can kids go to school and come home again? Can people be maybe not in large open plan offices, but you know, smaller workplaces? and possibly be in a theatre together?
1: Well, this is a kind of slightly depressing thing, (laughs) is that even at 80%, and that's a figure that's been thrown around a lot, um, that doesn't really give us the holy grail of herd immunity, not with Delta. Um, So there was, and even, you know, I mean, maybe we could have done it with Alpha, but we haven't, there's not really been modelling to show that um, as far as I know. So there was actually some previous modeling that was done based on the alpha strain and based on this theoretical strain that might be more transmissible. So this was before Delta went really ballistic. And even then with this theoretically more transmissible strain, even when we hit 80% coverage, it's still not enough to give this herd immunity so that we can throw the doors wide open what it does do is it means you have substantially lower transmission, Um, you have reduced need for social distancing measures, you have lower rates of hospitalisation and death. But even at 80%, you still need highly effective test tracing, isolating and quarantining. So uh, effective and compliant. So, you know, QR codes, and people getting tested as soon as they uh, you know have been exposed or have symptoms, isolating properly, uh, being, you know, our contact tracing system being effective, it, it's still that's all still essential. And if any of that drops off, you know, if if contact tracing becomes less effective or whatever, if any of that TTIQ <laughs> drops off, then we're still going to need the stricter public health measures to get a lid on things. And that means lockdowns. Um, and they actually, they, they did some interesting charts in there, some of which are kind of terrifying, but they were looking at the importance of public health measures, even with high vaccine coverage. Um, and they sort of did this series of charts that look at infection numbers, you know, hospital ICU bed occupation and deaths in an outbreak scenario. And they showed that even if you have 70% vaccine coverage, but minimal public health measures. So, you know, not really any social distancing, not really any mask wearing, no restrictions on indoor uh, indoor occupation, they were sort of showing around 40 to 60 deaths a day at the peak of an outbreak. Um, even with 80% vaccine coverage, you know, a, a kind of 180 days of an outbreak could, with, with little public health, with no, you know, none of these sort of public health measures, you'd be looking at potentially over 1,000 deaths altogether. You know, and we haven't had that. You know, we're still at 928, I believe, is the latest figure, 928 deaths over the course of this entire pandemic. We haven't had anything like this compared to what has been seen in other countries. Um, so, you know, I think that would be brutal. It would be absolutely brutal if Australia was to go through that. So, you know, there's, it, it, to me, and again, always with the caveat, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a public health expert, but reading this, it really does stress that this is a, you know, a three-pronged approach and we, it, we cannot do without any of those three components to that approach one is vaccination one is testing tracing um, isolating and quarantining and then the third is public health measures such as lockdowns masking restrictions on indoor space restrictions on travel we need all three of those to be absolutely bang on um, to get to a situation where we can start to talk about you know opening borders you know it's you know, there's this kind of constant focus on vaccines. I sometimes find it a bit jarring with a lot of the press conferences at the moment. It's all about vaccination, vaccination, vaccination. Yes, it is. But I guess, you know, what this is suggesting is that people, you know, we can't, Create this expectation in the population that as soon as we hit this sort of 70% coverage, that suddenly none of that other stuff matters anymore. That other stuff is still going to be essential. Um, and, you know, I think that's sort of revealing itself in the UK now, where there's just the infection rates and in, in the US, where infection rates are going through the roof, hospitals are being overwhelmed. It is getting back into that nightmare scenario again.
0: So, when we look at this report, I think that it paints a picture to the public, possibly for the first time in Australia that we're really not going to reach this nirvana where we go back to how life was in 2019. And, I mean, that's a really big message to take on board, but in some ways I feel like a lot of the public have been sitting back, waiting for the vaccine, thinking that they don't need it immediately, thinking that we'll just always be in this cycle where the government will save us with the one-off lockdown and then we'll go outside again and go back to the pub. But that's not really the case. We're finally getting, you know, the taste of what overseas countries had, certainly in New South Wales, where we've just got this really sticky strain that we just can't seem to shake. Do you think that this message has really turned around in the last couple of weeks in New South Wales, at least? I, I don't
1: think I, I don't think this particular message that this is a this is a long game. I don't think that's getting through. I think you know politicians and maybe because you know they're, they're just trying to get through to the next election and make it through that which is in you know a year or so you know they're operating on short time frames and I don't think it would be a particularly popular message for them to say look we're going to be in this for the long the long term um not just this lock, particular lockdown but you know ongoing kind of you know short sharp lockdowns come back out restrictions on indoor gatherings mask mandates those sorts of things you know that's not a popular message. That's a pretty hard sell. But I think you know I feel like we we the the modeling is telling us that this is a long game, and not only that that we can't afford to be weary of our responsibilities. We can't afford to relax our guard, even when we start getting up around seventy percent, eighty percent immunization. Um, And, you know, there are also the, there's the wild card of, um, you know, vaccine evading variants, you know, with the numbers of cases that we're seeing now in in some parts of the world, uh, it feels almost inevitable that we're going to see a variant emerge soon that does get around existing vaccines. And obviously that's problematic, but, uh, you know, it doesn't spell death for humanity because fortunately, um, you know, it would be, I imagine, I wouldn't say easy, but I don't think it's technically difficult to adapt these um, vaccines. And I think there was something about Moderna has just released some data. Um, they're looking already at a booster program for their um, their vaccine, which is called SpikeVax, which I love. It's my favourite vaccine name. Um, so, you know, there's talk of boosters. The UK is now looking at, at boosters. Uh, and I imagine that we will start getting you know boosters that, that tackle new variants. Maybe it's going to end up being something like the HPV vaccine, where you have multiple variants included in a single booster. I I don't know. I mean, I am sure there are far smarter people than me looking at that. But yeah, there's there's so much unknown, and we we hate uncertainty, and particularly uncertainty that means we go for extremely long periods without seeing our loved ones, and um, you know, and, and incredible economic instability for for many people, and insecurity, and all of those things so yeah it's it's a tricky one it's not it's not an easy message to to kind of sell which is why I think the government's just kind of singing the vaccine song and hoping that that'll magically make everything better and it'll help but it's not the only thing
0: Bianca thanks so much for joining me on this absolutely never-ending story uh, from my (laughs) quarantine bunker here.
1: Yes, very much so. I look forward to the day when I'm not writing about COVID.
0: So do I, so do I, Bianca. (laughs) Thank you very much.